I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS, where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. Coming up on The Trade Guys, we'll talk about a shrinking U.S. trade deficit, the America Summit, solar, and much more. Trade Guys break it all down right here, right now. Trade Guys, welcome back. And I wanted to throw this out there. The U.S. reported a sharp drop in April imports due to moderating domestic demand for foreign goods and materials. And this all happened as the World Bank warned that high prices and slow growth will hit trade this year. And our trade deficit actually shrunk in April. So what does this all mean, Scott? Well, it's a one-month data point, and there is some variability in trade flows uh, over time. But if you look at the things that we import, roughly a trillion dollars worth of what we import are consumer goods. Another trillion are what are called intermediate goods, which are things to make other things. So U.S. manufacturers often import components and parts and equipment to produce a finished product. Same with if you're building a house. There, there are some components that are produced domestically, some that are imported, but those would be a, an example of intermediate goods. So you'd have to look at the numbers, but unless there was a major increase in exports, which doesn't appear to be the case, well, usually a, a decline in imports is coincident with a slowdown in the economy. Like I said, it's one month, so we'll see how the data bears out over time. But over time, you know, we do run a large trade deficit, mostly because we run an investment surplus. There's a balance sheet. But month to month, there are some ups and downs. But that's what I can say at the moment. Well, this, this one was a pretty big down because the trade gap in goods and services fell 19% in April from the prior month to a seasonally adjusted $87 billion. And this is retreating from a record $108 billion deficit the prior month. So it's a pretty substantial drop. But Bill, what does this mean to you, if anything? I agree with Scott that you can't go by one-off one-month data because there's a lot of variability and some of it's seasonal, some of it just the way things turn out. I think in this case, I would disagree on one thing because actually exports went up. In fact, they went up to a record high in this month. I mean, he's right that imports are down, but exports hit a record of $252.6 billion. That's extraordinary. Imports fell to $339.7 billion. That's down 3 or 4% from the record that they set in March. So that is a sign of slower economic growth, but the sign of growing exports, even when the dollar, as near as I can tell, fairly strong, that's a significant sign of, I think, U.S. competitiveness and some economic strength. So I think it's too soon to say this is a sign of doom. Well, let's take a look at some of the Biden administration stuff this week. Big Summit of the Americas. Let's look at that. Now, President Biden unveiled a American Partnership for Economic Prosperity, and this is billed as a pretty significant economic plan for Latin America. Is this the Western Hemisphere version of IPEF? Yeah, they changed the name a little bit, but it's virtually the same as, as APEP, right? It's got five pillars rather than four, but the five pillars are basically the same four plus reform of multilateral institutions. Uh, which means the IADB, the Inter-American Development Bank, and trying to figure out how to bring more private investment into the region. 
they're all good pillars. But if you listen to the rhetoric, it's basically a replay of Asia. You know, they're going to talk to the countries. It's a menu approach. You sign up for what you want to negotiate. They're going to spend the next couple of months, just like they spent the previous six, trying to get countries to sign up probably announced in the the fall, who signed up, then you pick your pillars, then you start negotiation. So it's a replay. Look, maybe it'll work. I would just point out not much else has in the Americas. So, Andrew, you mentioned there's a summit of the Americas. Would you believe it's the ninth summit of the Americas? I mean, who knew? Right. I, I didn't even really know this one was happening. I know what happened at the first one. The first one was in 1994. And the impresario was was Commerce Secretary Ron Brown, who did a great job. He had leaders from across the hem- throughout the hemisphere in Miami, and the, there was a big bold commitment to a free trade area of the Americas. The only problem was they uh, they picked a ten year negotiating timetable, and as one Latin American trade negotiator told me, that was the equivalent of giving every leader an eight year paid vacation when it came to trade commitments. <laughs> so. Well, by the time the eight-year paid vacation was over, it was 2001 or 2002, and they had a disastrous second ministerial in Quebec City, which was basically Seattle Act Two of the anti-globalization crowd. You know, it hasn't been hasn't been going along swimmingly since then. But I mean, to the credit of I think the people who were thinking about these things then, the Bush administration, Bob Zelik in particular, who was U.S. Trade Representative, they took the lemons that they'd been given and they made lemonade. And it turns out today we we have free trade agreements with only 20 economies worldwide, and 12 of those 20 are in the Western Hemisphere. It's not like nothing happened. We do have operating high high standard free trade agreements, but the summits have been a series of disappointments since then. Much has been made of the fact in the announcement this week that we already have bilateral or regional free trade agreements with a number of partners in the region, Mexico, Canada. Central America, plus the Dominican Republic, but also Colombia, Peru, and Chile. And Panama. And Panama, thank you. We have an established relationship with a lot of them. Of course, that's also true to a slightly lesser extent in Asia, because we have bilateral agreements with Australia, with Singapore, kind of a partial agreement with Japan. So it's it's not like we're nowhere in Asia, but clearly we have a much more established framework of bilateral and regional arrangements in the United States, there's administration talk, of course, about moving beyond those high-level agreements. But once again, there's no market access. There's no tangible benefits. There's no particular incentives to join. We'll see what they come up with. I mean, they had to scramble to come up with something in, in Asia. It remains to be seen whether they've succeeded. They're going to have to go through the same exercise with Latin America. People don't join these things for free, you know, and we got nothing to offer right now. No free lunch. There is no free lunch. Well, you know, for politicians, there used to be free lunches because the lobbyists would be able to take you to lunch. I benefited from that enormously when I was on the hill. But uh, I remember there was one place up there that that uh, I, I love to go to because they recognized me. They had no idea who I was. They didn't know what my name was because I was always being hosted by somebody else who had made the reservation. But they knew if I showed up, it was they were going to make money because it was going to be... You know, a lunch with somebody who would probably leave a decent tip. Oh, the good old days. Yeah, those those are the good old days. (laughs) Yeah, this this is like the three martini lunch days, right? I never had a martini at any of those lunches. I just want to say that for the record. For the record. Well, speaking of the record, on this new economic plan for Latin America, what authority does the president have to actually conclude these frameworks 
without the consent of Congress? And is Congress behind this? That's a really interesting question. And it came up, or I thought surprisingly, kind of dramatically, Monday night. I moderated the panel with the two House trade key staffers, Alexander Whitaker from the Ways and Means Democrats and Josh Schneed from the Ways and Means Republicans. The whole thing was off the record, so I won't tell you what they said. This was a, a, a panel hosted by WIT, Women in International Trade, and GATT DC, which is the organization of LGBT trade professionals. But what came up at the end was a very interesting conversation about exactly your question. Where is the president's authority? And the question that was asked was, we may be looking at trade promotion authority debate backwards. You know, the, the administration seems to be looking at is, well, trade promotion authority has expired. So now we have no constraints and we can do whatever we want. And I think the view in Congress increasingly is trade promotion authority has expired. That means you have no authority. You know, and you have no authority to do anything under Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution, which gives the authority to Congress. Now, when that argument is made, the, the executive branch always cites Article 2, which is their article, which gives the president the authority to conduct foreign relations. And where the thing is kind of settled, the equilibrium has been the president can talk about anything he wants. And he can, if he wants to have a negotiation, he can negotiate anything he wants, whether he can sign something and implement something and actually agree to anything is a much more complicated legal question. And he can launch this. He doesn't need any authority to, to say, I'm going to sit down with all the Latin American countries and have a conversation. If he produces an agreement, I think there will be people in Congress saying, you know, if we don't approve it, it doesn't count. And you have no authority to sign anything. Well, in the previous administration, I always got a kick out of the signing ceremonies because our previous president, uh, President Trump, would go around and he'd go get a deal. And the deal would have a big photo op with smiles and handshakes and flags. And it looked just like he'd signed a free trade agreement or something. <laughs> Except their operating practice was, hey, if it doesn't change U.S. law, we don't need no stinking Congress. And in some ways, nobody, nobody stopped that. So that was the pattern. I found it personally quite amusing. And I realized that many foreign leaders don't really want the disciplines of a free trade agreement with the United States because we make it hard. We ask them for difficult stuff. We ask them for real market opening, real transparency, things like that. What they want is the picture. And I think somehow President Trump figured that out. But we are at a quandary because there, at least during President Trump's years in office, there was operating negotiating authority. There was a relationship with the Congress in terms of oversight and consultation, uh, at least that was specified in, in and, a ballot. And they announced they would honor the procedures that were in the law in yeah. terms of consultation. Yes. And, and Lighthizer did. Yes. So they actually, they kept the letter of the law and they kept Congress to the role that the operating underlying statutes obligated them to. We're beyond that now, and I'm not sure what to make of the current situation. I always thought those ceremonies were like an opportunity for President Trump to show off his signature. He's got this really huge signature, and he would scribble it out, and it was, it, you know, it was a big deal, right? It was, it was great theater. I mean, great but, theater. but, you know, really, really, if you can get that picture without making a lot of hard commitments, you'll take that deal, okay? And a lot of foreign leaders did. Bill's not that amused. <laughs> <laughs> There's very little that Donald Trump has ever done that's amused me. One of the questions that came up Monday night, which was uh, which was unanswered, by the way, but was a good question, is essentially to to Congress. So you're unhappy at the lack of consultation. So you're unhappy about being bypassed. What are you going to do about it? And 
Good There's question. Really a good answer to that, you know? Right. Well, speaking of Congress, another big thing happened this week. President Biden on Monday invoked emergency powers, the Defense Production Act, to provide the Commerce Secretary with the authority to create 24-month safe harbor from tariffs that could arise from the agency's probes into solar imports from Southeast Asia. What about this, guys? Well, I've approached from a trade law perspective because that's sort of what we do at the Shoal Chair. I think it's on very weak ground from the standpoint of trade law. He used a relatively obscure provision of the law, actually one that Trump used in 2020, but Trump used it properly. It's a provision of law that was intended really for wartime that allows the Secretary of the Treasury to waive duties to deal with emergencies. Okay, so the first step is you have to declare an emergency. So we have a solar power emergency. No, we have an energy. He declared an energy emergency. And the court, he'll probably get away with that part of it because the courts generally defer to the administration. When the president says there's an emergency, there aren't very many judges who are going to say, who am I to say there's no emergency? So they're likely to get away with that. The difference is, though, that if you read the section in question, what it says is the Secretary of the Treasury can waive duties of food, clothing, and medical, surgical, and other supplies for use in emergency relief work. That's what the statute says. So the question is, do solar panels or modules fall under the categories of food, clothing, and medical, surgical, and other supplies for use in emergency relief work? Most, if not all, of the lawyers that I've talked to think that's a stretch and is unlikely to be sustained if anybody sues. On the other hand, nobody's going to sue for a while because right now there's no harm done. What the president has done is waive tariffs that do not yet exist. There's an investigation going on that he has not stopped, so it's going to continue. And they may ultimately, the investigation may ultimately produce a decision to impose tariffs the preliminary is due either August 23rd or August 29th. I forget which. And I think the final will be in January. So if there is a decision to impose the tariffs, and Commerce will just go ahead and do what the law requires it to do. And if they think it, the situ, you know, that circumvention has occurred, they'll put in, they'll announce tariffs. At that point, they get waived. At that point, somebody gets harmed. And at that point, somebody can sue. Not before, because no harm done until then. It's not clear to me who can sue. The company that has filed the complaint that's being investigated, a company called Auxin, A-U-X-I-N, which is on the West Coast, which makes solar panels, they clearly have standing to sue because they're the ones that would be hurt. Whether anybody else in the industry would also have standing to sue, I just don't know. I mean, nobody else is a party to the petition. And would other people be hurt by the tariffs being waived? Probably, uh, but I'd have to think about that some more. So anyway, dubious legality. In the short run, it doesn't make any difference. The real question is, if you're a manufacturer, is this going to change your behavior? Because the point was to stabilize the market. I think we talked about this once before. What happens when a case like this comes along is there's a panic period. People say, oh my, there's going to be huge duties, which there could be, and there's a pause. The imports tend to decline. And they tend to decline until there is a decision. And then they start to go back up again, no matter what the decision is. Even if the decision is to impose tariffs, they tend to go back up because it's a question of restoring certainty. So right now we're in the panic phase. A bunch of 
utilities canceled projects, they canceled imports, huge amount of hyperventilation on all sides. If you listen to the domestic manufacturers, this petition doesn't prevail, then they're doomed and they're all going to go out of business. If you listen to the people installing panels, this petition is going to put them all out of business and set back the transition to solar forever. Both sides are exaggerating. The question that I don't know the answer today is, will the president's action get some of those installers to restart the projects and restart imports? And that means, you know, all the president did was provide a two-year period. You know you're safe from now until, you know, two years from next January, probably, worst case. And it's two years relief on tariffs only if the basic products themselves become more expensive, which solar panels are becoming more expensive because of the materials used to make them and the cost of extracting those materials. So if you look at like the 10-year history of solar panels, there was a, a long period of substantial price decline. So they became cheaper and cheaper over time. They bottomed out and they're now becoming more expensive. So this action doesn't do anything about that. It only affects the tariffs on a certain group of products from certain places where there was an accusation of malfeasance or violation of the trade laws, where that there was shipping and not substantial transformation. So that's the investigation Bill talked about. But this really only affects the tariffs. So whether it affects the overall economics of solar panels is a bigger question and not addressed by this or the Defense Production Act. Right now, it's not being met with enormous amounts of enthusiasm. The decision, I mean, the installation industry is happy because the immediate threat of big tariffs is, has been removed, but it's temporary removal. And as I said, the question is whether if you're going to invest in more manufacturing capability, are you going to do that when you know you've got a two and a half year window? Or are you going to wait and see how things develop? The domestic industry, on the other hand, has reacted negatively. Um, no surprise. I mean, the company that is the main victim here, Ashin, has attacked the, the decision. But the rest of the industry is saying that the whole thing is too little, too small. What he's going to do is use the Defense Production Act basically as a demand stimulant. The feds are going to buy more panels uh, and going to encourage the purchase of more panels. And the Energy Department is going to invest more money in manufacturing. Well, apparently the pot of money currently available to do that is about $434 million. And that's not a whole lot of money. A new manufacturing plant from scratch that would crank out 1.4 gigawatts of solar modules annually would cost around 170 million. So 434 million isn't going to go very far if you're talking about building new plants. 1.4 gigawatts is small compared to the fact that last year we imported 24 gigawatts. So if you're thinking about domestic construction of plants to offset imports, you've got a very long way to go and not very much money to get there. I would just observe it's the second invocation of the Defense Production Act in a month. Yeah, though that's exactly what I was going to say, Scott. We had to do baby formula and now we're doing solar. Two I guess it just looks, it makes it look like we're, we're doing something. I, I don't know what else to, to make of that. It doesn't seem to affect the industries all that much, but it kind of reminds me, George Carlin once had part of his routine where he talked about his favorite bumper stickers. One of them was, Jesus is coming, look busy. <laughs> and this is, I think this is the defense production actually the equivalent of the voters are coming, look busy. Yeah, <laughs> so. yeah. Speaking of looking busy, 
One of my favorite recent headlines comes from Politico, and it says, can a WTO summit fix the world's problems? Asks the question, and it answers, it's a long shot. So next week, leaders will gather in Geneva for the big ministerial. Is it a long shot? Yes. It's a very very long shot, particularly after today's news, which is that India is blocking some fairly benign provisions about food exports. One of the things that they wanted to do next week is reach agreement that countries will not impose export restrictions on food because there's a global food crisis, thanks to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And they also want to pass a, a measure that says that particularly you can't restrict food exports to the World Food Program which is the program that provides relief to countries that don't have enough to eat. And India is blocking all that based on a long-standing disagreement over their own agricultural policies. You know, this is one of these things where virtually everybody else thinks it's a good idea and you have a genuine global emergency thanks to the war and you've basically got one country standing in the way. And I have to say, this is classic Indian tactics, which for years has been We want what we want. And if we can't get what we want, we'll stop everybody else from getting everything that they want. And that's the game that's being played out right now. Well, and that's particularly scary because to put this in perspective, 20 million metric tons of grain and seeds are stranded in Ukraine or seized by Russia, cut off from Black Sea ports. And the Ukrainian government has accused Russia of stealing up to 500,000 tons of wheat, which is worth about $100 million. And there don't seem to be exporting them. If they've stolen the wheat, I don't know where it is. It doesn't have to go from Odessa. If they've stolen it, they can ship it to Crimea, for that matter, and ship it from there. It's not appearing. This ends up kind of being an issue of trust a little bit. You know, the immediate problem is the Ukrainians have mined the ocean outside the, the Black Sea, outside of Odessa, to keep the Russian Navy out. They'd have to remove the mines in order to let the grain ships out. And the Ukrainians are worried that if they do that, then the Russian Navy will come in and attack Odessa. And frankly, they're saying, you know, if the Russians promise not to do that, we don't believe them. You know, they also said they weren't going to invade. You'd really like to have a, an effective WTO at this point in time. And, you know, the World Trade Organization has basically won the award year after year for being the least ineffective international organization. But that's not exactly high mark. No, it is not. In this case, for a lot of reasons, the war in Ukraine, the droughts, the high cost of fertilizers, a lot of reasons, the world's going to be short of calories this year. We kind of know that on a macro mass balance look. And that shortage will show up in disruption. The last time the world was really short of calories was 2008, 2009. And you remember the unrest, particularly in the Middle East, where what, we call, what was called the Arab Spring were actually bread riots more than anything else. I mean, that's, that's the, the way to look at that. So it's really important. I think the WTO was surprisingly ineffective in the 2008, 2009 period. And it continues to not be able to get its act together on what are big issues that it ought to be within its wheelhouse. Now, in fairness to the organization, it's always been a bottom-up consensus-based process, but that behavior hasn't been modeled. Uh, Bill and I both remember a Hong Kong representative, WTO ambassador from Hong Kong, Stuart Harbison was his name. And Stuart painstakingly traveled the world and worked a ministerial statement, sentence by sentence, word by word, uh, around the world to get to an agreement, which led to, I think, the Doha Declaration way back in 2001. But it really takes that kind of work that doesn't seem to be uh, happening. And I don't think it can happen from the director general. 
Director General has convening power and something of a bully pulpit, but members have got to decide they want to work on this and, and put it together. That seems to be absent, unless I'm just not close enough. I retain some shreds of optimism on some fronts. The Indians are holding out on a number of things. And actually, we've made that situation worse because there's another issue that's become much more important to the United States recently, and that's a longstanding moratorium on taxation of digital transactions, internet transactions. And the moratorium expires every ministerial and has to be renewed. And for years, it was paired with another moratorium the Indians badly wanted, which was a moratorium on filing what were referred to as non-violation complaints. That is, could file a complaint against a country simply for its actions were denying you the benefits that you were entitled to under the WTO without you having to mention a particular provision of the rules that they had broken. You could just cite denial of benefits. There's been a moratorium on those cases for 20-odd years, just as there's been a moratorium on internet taxation for 20-odd years. And the Indians wanted the first one, the Americans wanted the second one. And the deal always was that we would go along with, each of us would go along with the other one in the interest of getting them both done. The United States messed that up last year. They allowed the waiver the Indians wanted to be extended for reasons I've never figured out, gave up our leverage. And now the Indians are threatening to block the one that we want. And, you know, we got nothing because we gave away the leverage that we had last year. I think it was a huge tactical error by USTR. And there's other leverage, but probably will end up, the Indians will demand concessions on the vaccine waiver. It's not clear whether they're going to support the compromise that they helped negotiate, or we may have to give up something on, on this food issue that we were just talking about in terms of you know, letting the Indians do what they can't do now, basically, which is to buy up their own production, have the government buy up their own production at inflated prices in India to support their farmers, and then dump it on the global market at low prices. That's what the rules stop them from doing. And what the Indians want to do is change the rules so they can do that. And our farmers, not to mention farmers in most of the rest of the world, the developed world anyway, strongly object to that because they'll be the losers. And so the Indians are holding us hostage and we gave away an important piece of leverage last year. So we're going to have to concede something this time around if any of these things are going to happen. So they're going to get some of what they want, at least. Looks like it. And it's not none of it's good for us. Wow. There's a happy thought. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we don't like being on that end of the equation. Well, a lot to think about and more to talk about in future episodes of Trade Guys. Guys, you really brought the heat today. I appreciate it. And we'll see you next week. Thank you. Thank you. To our listeners, if you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the Trade Guys react to it. You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.